But gosh, so good to see such, uh, so many familiar faces. I've missed you so much. And so many new faces. Never seen you before, ever. I'm Chris. Nice to meet you all. Um, gosh, this is... Uh, just thinking about being able to come back here from just the, the wilderness of California and just being able to come back to uh, Carpinteria to see just old friends and family and people who have poured into me over the years. And it's, it's almost like you know, when a, a kid goes off to school or something and then just gets beat up for like nine months, you know, and then comes back during the summer to mom and mom's like, hey, just come, come back home. I'll make you a warm meal. You're like, oh. That's what I feel like right now. It's really, really good to be back and to see so many of you who have uh, uh, just been such a, a deep part of my, my spiritual life and upbringing. I really consider, even though I'm 35 um, uh, and this church is, is a little over 10 years old, this is really the, my spiritual upbringing. This is where I consider to have been raised spiritually in the Lord, and I'm, I'm so indebted uh, to this family of believers as my, my whole family is, and um, and Ventura, I can't see you right now, Ventura campus, but I feel you. And all the, <laughs> all the relationships uh, that have been formed there with my wife and my, uh, myself, my family, um, I feel those still and I miss you as well. Uh, even though I can't see you and I'm not there, Jesus Christ is there at your campus just as he is there. And that's the beauty of this church that always has attracted me to it is that immediately we open up the Word of God and we attempt to be drawn to the presence of Jesus Christ through His spoken Word and by His Holy Spirit. And so, um, turn with me now to Revelation 21. Britt gave me a really short text, told me to preach all of 21 and part of 22. (laughs) At first I thought I was in trouble, so I was like, okay. But uh, it's, it's maybe the best thing that's ever been written. And so for that, I'm... Very excited, but this last week um, you went through what was called the, the new heaven and new earth. This is coming out of that, speaking about the new Jerusalem, more of the uh, same type of glory that awaits us, and I'm excited to get into it. It's a very long section of scripture, so what we're going to do now is I'm just going to start reading in verse 9. We're just going to read the whole thing. Just allow it to uh, comfort you, to wash over you, to renew your mind, let it sink in, and then we'll look at all the stuff that we need to uh, in order to get the point that the Apostle John is giving us. So, start reading in Revelation 21, verse 9. It says this. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, or 1,380 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, or 607 feet, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. 
And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will never be night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be there anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that right now the vision that so struck the Apostle John would now strike us here in Carpinteria and in Ventura. We pray that we would receive in our day and in our age, in our week, in our life, a persuasive and dramatic vision of what's to come. Without doubt, Lord, there are men and women, young and old, who are in this church, in our church, going through a variety of different things, some small and some big. God, I just pray that you would meet us in the pages of your word, that you would give us an antidote for all that life is throwing at us and throttling us with, sometimes the best thing for us to do is to get our eyes on something other than ourselves. And so I pray we get a panoramic view of the kingdom of God and we'd leave this place with more comfort, more assurance, more worship, and more praise in the resurrected Son of God. Pray that you would honor your word, helping us to understand it today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to do something uh, as we go into this chapter, which is very, very big. A lot of stuff we have to cover, and we're not going to look at every single verse. Um, We're going to look at all the ones that we need to look at uh, in order to grasp the point that John is making to us. But before we do that, I just wanted to take a few minutes to kind of back up and give us the backstory. Uh, I have uh, two kids now. I have a, a daughter. Her name's Abby. She's two and a half years old, and I have a son. His name's Jude. He's about 10 months old. Abby means the father's joy. Jude means praise. Um, That's why we named them. Also the Beatles, but whatever. (laughs) Uh, They're kind of right in that stage that is just the most fun and most chaotic of anything I've ever experienced in my life. (laughs) And you never know what you're going to get. The day could be just pure bliss and thrill, or it could be whatever the opposite of that is. Um, but you never know what you're going to get. And often when I come home from work about five o'clock or a little after, I'm usually greeted at the door to a panoramic scene. And it could be anything. It could be good. Sometimes I'm greeted by smiles and cuddles and giggles and just, just pure bliss. Other times, screaming. Everybody, just Jude, screaming. Abby, screaming. Sometimes Brianna, screaming. And then me, screaming, just all screaming. Uh, sometimes I open up the door and there's my kid just standing, you know, just buck naked and covered in paint. What happened? I don't know. I never know. Other times I open up the door and right in the middle, right there at the door greeting me is Brianna. She hands me a kid. She's all here and she walks out. I don't see her for a couple hours. You never really know what you're going to get when you open up that door. 
Part of the fun for me is dinner time, you know, when we all come back together around the food, and I kind of hear the backstory. Well, this happened, and that happened, and, you know, uh, Abby got into the paint, and that was an adventure. I'll just all of this stuff that just makes me chuckle. Um, just fun, 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 chaotic stuff that I, I, just, I just love my kids, and some of those stories are just what I live by. But we need the backstory to figure out what's going on. What happened to get... My family to this place right now. Oh, this, 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 and this. Yeah, that makes sense. What I want to propose today is that we do that with Revelation. Not just the whole book, but specifically Revelation chapter 21. There is a vivid backstory that spans the entire book that I want us to tap into just really quickly before we go into uh, Revelation 21. There is a pre-existing template to view Revelation. And it's already good, right? You guys read, we just read Revelation 21 from start to finish, and it's good by itself. We could probably go home right now. Um, But Britt told me to preach, so I'm going to keep going. (laughs) But to kind of open up the pages of what came before it, we'll just give it more of a vivid, kind of give it the teeth that it needs to just kind of sink into our hearts and souls. And I want to do that now, and I want to do it by asking or posing a question. If I were to ask you, what is the mission statement of the Almighty God? What would you say to that? Have you ever been in an office, like a business or something, they have the plaque on the wall somewhere, it's their mission statement, it's a pithy, like, one or two sentence declaration of what they're all about. What's God's mission statement? What is God passionate about? We can read in the Bible a lot of things that he does, all of which are good, but what is the one thing that drives him? What is the one thing that he is obsessed with? What is the one thing that consumes God? If you were to be able to ask him right now, like, hey, God, what are you all about? What would he say? Some of us would say, well, he's all about the cross, or he's all about the church, or he's all about uh, atonement, or the forgiveness of sin. There's so many good things we could throw out. Yet I, venturing from this, would have to say, those are all good things that fit under a broader umbrella. That is God's mission in life, his burning passion. And judging from Genesis to Revelation, the things that just kind of naturally emerge, I have to say that his mission statement, his driving passion, his his consuming passion is his own kingdom. That if he had a plaque on the wall of his living room that said, this is my mission statement, it would say something to this effect. I want to establish my kingdom forever. And every other good thing that we read about in the Bible is to the end goal of that thing, the kingdom of God. Now, we, you might ask yourself, well, I see the kingdom being brought up in you know, the Gospel of Matthew, but it's nowhere in Leviticus. I don't see kingdom being taught or, or spoken of or mentioned at all, actually in a lot of different books. One of the most helpful things I've ever heard about the kingdom, a a brief definition, was by an author named Graham Goldsworthy who put it in a a kind of a a single phrase. He said, at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is really just about three things. It's about this. It's about God's people in God's place under God's rule. You want to know what the kingdom of God is all about? It's really just three things. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And you might not find the word kingdom anywhere in Leviticus or Genesis or Obadiah or any of those, uh, some of those books, but you will find those three things everywhere. God is all about bringing together a people for his own namesake in the space that he has ordained and ruling over them as a loving, godly king. And this is what the Bible's about. It's his plan to do that. And we see a little glimpse of it in Genesis, right? The first 11 chapters of those famous chapters of uh, creation, everything that comes out of it. What does God do? Well, he establishes a place, the Garden of Eden. And then he puts people into that place, God's people. And then he rules over them. And it doesn't even stop there. But then he gives them, he gives those people in his place under his rule, uh, uh, the, the assignment to extend his rule or his kingdom. Remember, he says to Adam and Eve, I want you now to go and multiply, to uh, subdue the earth. I want you to, in in a sense, become the vice regents of my kingdom. I want you to represent me. I want you to cultivate what I have created. I want you to expand my fame, my kingdom, and my glory in this place that I have created for your joy and my glory. 
Essentially, he's created a people, put them in a place, and ruled over them, and given them the task, the stewardship of that. Now, we all know how the story goes. Serpent whispers something, Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit, and it's much more than just eating, you know, uh, eating a fruit salad that they shouldn't have. It speaks more of a, a, a far greater issue that for the first time in human history, people said, I want to be your people, and I want to have your place, but I don't want to be under your rule anymore, okay? And so all of a sudden, God's great design gets, gets hijacked. And everything that comes out of the fall, everything that comes out of sin, our innate desire from the very beginning to say, I don't want to be ruled by you, God. I don't want to be autonomous. That sin that humanity has been struggling with from the beginning taints everything and leaves us with the question, well, now how's God going to do it? And Genesis chapter 12 all the way through chapter 50 is God's answer to what he's going to do about the sin problem that, that threatens to thwart his kingdom. For all of those people saying, well, what about God's kingdom? Now how is he going to do it? All of a sudden we see a shift in the narrative, right? It was for 11 chapters all about the cosmos and the creation of the world and big floods and the Tower of Babel and all the people on earth. All of a sudden we come to a halt. Everything slows down incredibly. And in those remaining chapters, it's not about the world. It's not about the globe, it's not about every person on the planet, it then begins to focus on one man and his family, Abraham and Israel, which would come out of that. This is God saying, this is my plan. I've got a plan to deal with sin and to establish my kingdom once and for all, and it's going to come this way. And over the rest of Genesis, what you see is God giving promises for what that's going to look like, covenant promises. I'm not going to read them all in their entirety, they're kind of large, but in places like Genesis 17 uh, and some in the surrounding areas, you get this similar promise over and over. I'm going to be a God to you. I'm going to give you and your offspring the land of your sojournings, he says in chapter 17. He also says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You see what he's saying there? Saying what he's been saying from the beginning. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. You're going to be God's people. And I'm going to give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. I'm going, to, I'm going to create a place for you to be again. But I'm going to be a God to you. And you're going to be my people over and over. He says that through Genesis. God's people in God's place under God's rule. You may say, well, what do I care about the kingdom? I got my own problems. I got my own things that I'm dealing with. I'm not sure how a kingdom set in the Garden of Eden uh, has anything to do with that. The kingdom of God, if you break it down that way, really speaks of some of the most fundamental innate longings in every human person. Think of any of these things. Uh, to, the, uh, to be a part of another people, a people group. To be included. To not be isolated. That speaks of our desire to belong to someone, to something. To not be by ourselves. To not be outcast, but to be a part of a family. God's people. God's place speaks to another desire, whether it's someone who is a refugee stripped of their homeland to uh, something maybe more personal, someone who's homeless stripped of their uh, right to live in a home or something of that nature. If you ever talk to someone like that, you can see in their face this tremendous attack upon that human person's dignity, something about having our own place that speaks about the way that God made us and what we need. And then God's rule, as we saw uh, in the beginning of Genesis, it turns out we are not made to rule ourselves. We are not made to be autonomous. No matter what the world or culture around us tells us, we're meant to be worshipers of a great master. I love the words of the, the Scottish preacher Alistair Begg, who once said, our heart is like a tyrant, and it needs a loving king to rule over it. And so in these words given to Abraham, we have everything that humanity longs for, everything that's been missing, everything that it crushes our heart in order to have is wrapped up in God's kingdom. So when we get to Revelation 21, all we're really seeing right now, you know, the Bible has developed that theme throughout. All Revelation 21 is doing right now is showing us that the kingdom of God that has been promised all of these centuries is now being delivered to your doorstep. One of my favorite things on the planet is tracking my Amazon packages. 
a new technology where you can just pull up a, you know, a website and see where this package is. I almost love that more than I love getting the actual, the actual package. And there have been times where I'm like, okay, I wonder where it is. And you, know, you look at that green line and it tells you this cryptic words like it's in transit, whatever that means, or it's at the facility. My favorite, or I should say the most tense for me, is that, that last inch before it actually hits the end. And you don't know where it is, but you know it's in your town. And I'll pull it up sometimes in the middle of the night. I've done that. Just woken up. I wonder where my pack, that package is. And it's, it's right in that last sliver of the transit, which means it's in Santa Barbara somewhere. And it drives me nuts because I'm like, it could be either in Goleta at UPS or it could be at my doorstop and they just, uh, at my doorstep, they didn't ring the bell. It drives me nuts. It's like my love-hate relationship. I love it more than actually getting the thing. And when I get the thing, I just want to order something else just so I can see where it is. Oh, Kentucky. Oh, Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, my doorstep. Revelation 21 is better than Amazon tracking. It is heaven's tracking device there to tell you that the kingdom of God is on its way. For those of you that have doubted that because of what you've gone through, God is speaking this to you to say, it's, it's, it's right at your doorstep. In fact, Revelation 12, verse 10, one of the only spots in uh, Revelation where we see the word kingdom, we're actually told this. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been th- uh, thrown down. The kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. When we get to Revelation 21 verse 10, we just get a deeper sense of that rule and reign coming down. I love verse 10. I'm just going to read it again because it's so awesome. It says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. I love that visual. It's just another picture of God's rule coming a little bit closer to your doorstep. Most people have a hard time with what exactly this is referring to. Is it it an actual new Jerusalem, like an actual literal city that somehow comes down out of the clouds? Or is this speaking more about heaven, that that's somehow coming close? Or is it speaking about the church, you know, like the verse before it, it speaks about the bride, the wife of the lamb. Whenever we hear bride as Christians, we have that allusion to the church, the bride of Christ. So is this the church? Is it heaven? Is it the kingdom? Is it uh, an actual city? Nobody knows because there's so much overlap. And that's okay. We don't have to have the answer for every single question that pops up. We do have to have the main point. And the main point is absolutely clear. In one way or another, the he- the, this verse is telling us that heaven and earth in some way have come together in the fullest expression possible in Jesus Christ in the new heavens and new earth. We get glimpses of that, right, throughout the Bible. Jacob's dream in Genesis, there's a ladder that descends from heaven to earth and the angels are climbing it. We get that allusion to that happening. More fully, we get it in Jesus, John chapter 1, where we're told that God himself, uh, the word made flesh, he dwells or he tabernacles among us. Heaven kisses earth. And so we get these growing, deepening glimpses of heaven coming down. But this is the fullest expression of that. This is an absolute collision between heaven and earth coming together as they were meant to be. It's not earth being tossed in the trash and then we go to heaven. It's earth and heaven coming together and there's a new earth and a new heaven. It's the renewal of all things and this is what is in store for God's people and the entire story in Revelation. In fact, the entire story in the Bible supports that. There's going to come a time when earth and heaven meet in the fullest, deepest possible way. In fact, even as we're going through this text and we see these uh, different allusions, chapter 21, verse 12, what do we see right there? Uh, uh, There was a great high wall, 12 gates. We see the number 12 over and over. 12 gates, 12 angels, names, uh, gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed uh, and there's this allusion to the, the, uh, the lineage of Abraham. It's, it's then bringing us back to Genesis. It's bringing us back to the origin of the story. But it doesn't stay there. Look at what he says in verse 14. 
And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see what the author is doing here. He's taking the promises given to Abraham. He's taking the people of God, a contemporary, and he's bringing them together saying, this is the same story. And it's being brought to fulfillment in one single human being. Have you noticed that so far? There's all these characters being thrown out at the, uh, the beginning of Revelation 21. Oh, the new city, uh, Jerusalem. Oh, Abraham. Oh, the tribes of, uh, tribes of Israel, the apostles, the prophets, uh, uh, heaven and earth, all of this stuff. And yet, as you go through chapter 21, it almost visually just brings you into this funnel until you end on the person of Jesus Christ. Everything, every promise in the Bible is brought to its completion in one human person, the cast, the plot, the promises, the characters, they all find their deepest meaning in this Messiah. That's why I think John would say in chapter 22, 3, it's the throne of God and the lamb will be sitting on that throne and his servants will be worshiping him. As Revelation 21 goes even deeper, it just brings us uh, deeper into that prophetic vision of the kingdom God has been promising all this time. I want to take you into a few of these things. I want to get get our hands dirty and get into some of these details, but I want you to be looking for those three things. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Watch as those things emerge uh, in their fullest expression in Revelation 21. Let's talk about God's place. When heaven and earth meet, when we are glorified, when Christ returns and he has his way and it's, uh, the kingdom of God is consummated, you are going to be enjoying his presence and his glory in an unrestrained manner. You will be in God's place, experiencing God's presence and glory. I want to draw your attention to verses 15 through 21 in, uh, in chapter 21 where it begins to give descriptions and measurements of all of the stuff that John sees. One of them, in uh, verse 16, says the city, right? The city that comes down out of heaven, meets earth, lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. So really big uh, cube, 1,380 miles on each side. It's huge, Listen to the next line. It's length and width and height are equal. So we're talking about a square. Not just a square, but a cube. Perfectly equal on all sides. Now you could say, well, maybe it's a literal cube that comes out of the sky and we're all going to live in it like in an urban apartment or something. (laughs) Or you could recall all of the imagery in the Old Testament that had anything to do with a cube. The one that comes to mind is the most holy place in the temple. Remember the most holy place, that one small corner of the temple where only one person in Israel could enter into it in order to experience the living presence of God, and only then one time a year to offer a sacrifice. It was, I think, about three feet by three feet, so it also was a cube, but a very small one, and that was the only place on the planet that God's presence could be experienced and only by one person, one time a year under the most grueling of circumstances. Everybody else watched. Fast forward to Revelation 21 and we see another cube. Only this one is bigger. It's almost as if John is recalling the shape of the most holy place. It's the same shape, although it's not the same dimensions. It's, you know, over a thousand miles in this vision. Interesting, one author puts it this way, he says, the area of this perfect cube appears to be the approximate size of the then-known Hellenistic world. In other words, this visual of what the most holy place was, uh, was in that day is now expanded to be about roughly the size of the world at that time, the populated world. It almost seems as if John is saying, I saw a vision where God's presence was not contained into a cube about three feet wide, but where his glory and his presence covered the entire planet. Sounds very similar to what the prophet Habakkuk said when he said there's coming a time when the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When heaven and earth meet in full, already touched in different 
ways, but when they meet and they are consummated in full, God's presence and glory will not be confined to a small space. Everyone in it will be, well, in it. And we get some other illusions that are just telling us more. The same, verse 22, there's no need for a temple anymore. Why would you need it? Christ himself is the temple. You don't need to meet in a building anymore. You don't need to meet anywhere anymore. Christ's presence is literally everywhere that you might be. Hence the lack of the sun or the moon because of the glory and the presence of Christ is so overwhelmingly brilliant that it lights everything up. There's no nighttime and no insomnia either apparently. That's God's place. We also see God's rule in God's place. And this comes in the form of the healing and, re- uh, healing and renewal of the things that have been broken. For example, the, the curse is lifted, verse 3. A river of life flows through where the curse has been touched. Uh, and nations, as a result of this, are healed. Look at chapter 22. I just want you to look at this for a second. Verse 3, this tells us that the cur- uh, no longer will there be anything that's a curse. But right before that, there's all this imagery drawing together something that you might be familiar with. We see things like a river and a tree of life and 12 kinds of fruit. What's that remind you of? Garden of Eden. This is all going back. It's alluding back to the place that we started, Genesis And in Genesis, in those remaining chapters in the garden, we have another curse, the curse of sin, the curse that threatened to derail God's plan for a kingdom, for the good of his people, to be under his rule, in his place, and to be called his own. As we go all the way into Revelation 21, we see the same thing. We're told in context of the garden imagery that there's going to be a reversal of a curse. It's not just any curse. It's the curse. As a result of that, chapter 22, verse 1, there's a river, the water of life. It reminds me of Psalm 46. There's a, a river that makes glad the city of God. And this river brings healing to the nations. It doesn't take you too long to read headlines or turn on the tube, or look at TV, read the na- newspapers, uh, look at social media to see that the world is in turmoil. And the question over and over that constantly gets asked is, is there ever going to end? Is there ever going to be hope? And it seems to get worse and worse. But the tracking device in Revelation 21 says it's right at your doorstep. And there's coming a time where nations not only will be healed by the river of life, but they will come to Christ to worship. There will no longer be conflict. There will no longer be turmoil. There will be healing and renewal as God's rule is not only felt, it's actually embraced. It's longed for. It's wanted. Lastly, it's not just a place with God's rule, but it's God's people populating that place under his rule. This is in chapter 22, verse 4 through 5. They, speaking of God's people, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. A couple things that come out of this. One is our identity. I love the visual that we get in Revelation 22. They will see his face for the first time, and his name will be on their foreheads. His name will be on their foreheads. I've seen a... Just about every Disney movie about 20,000 times. Not by my own choice, but whatever. Uh, one of them, obviously, the old one, Toy Story. The, only, the scene that I always remember in that, the one that just gets me right in the feels, you know what I mean, is in that scene where Sid has taken both toys captive. You know, Woody is just up on the mantle somewhere. Buzz is... Uh, 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 actually, Woody is in that crate. Buzz has that rocket tied to his back, and he just realized that he's not a real Buzz Lightyear. He's a fake toy, right? So his identity is shattered. He's feeling sorry for himself. They're about to die. They have no future, no joy. It's all over, right? And all of a sudden, as Woody's giving him this pep talk, he, he, point, he alludes to something that happened in the past, and it causes Buzz to look down at his foot and to see a name engraven on his foot. And he realizes in that moment, even no matter what was been, has been spoken of him in that moment, no matter what he's gone through in that moment, no matter if he's made of plastic or he's real, he belongs to someone. 
He has a master. He has something to live for. And in that moment, everything takes off from there. The scriptures are telling you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you belong. His name has been engraved on your forehead. Your name has been written in the palms of his hand. So deeply do you belong to him. So deeply is that kinship that he has written his name on you. You belong. And nothing will ever take that away. In verse 5, we're told, uh, and I love this, I personally love this verse because when I grew up, my idea of heaven was that I would get saved, forgiven, and then kind of shoved into a corner to not break stuff, you know, for all of eternity. (laughs) Not sure what I would do in that corner, but all the cartoons that I watched led me to believe that it had something to do with heart playing and clouds. So trying to, you know, as a teenager, uh, get myself psyched about heaven when it's, you know, the, the greatest part of it is just going to be heart playing clouds and not breaking stuff. Um, perhaps this has been some of your visual, but we don't get that in the book of Revelation. We don't get anything about clouds or harps or not breaking stuff or not doing anything. Rather, we get a fulfilled life for the first time. We're told actually in the last verse that we read that we will reign forever and ever. What's that remind you of? Genesis. In the Garden of Eden where God commissioned his people after he created the garden. He said, now I want you to cultivate the ground. I want you to work and labor. I want you to do stuff. I want you to have fun. I want you to expand what I've been doing and just, just do what I've been doing and just have, have a blast. Spread my fame. Spread my name. Spread my kingdom. Spread all of those things. Failed to do it properly, but there will come a day all things are renewed, and he hands it back into our laps, and he says, let's, let's do this again. Let's do this again. I want you to notice all these allusions back to Genesis, referring to the kingdom of God, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule. Nowhere in Revelation 21 does he ever bring up the word kingdom? In fact, only once in Revelation does he ever bring up the word kingdom. He doesn't bring it up. He certainly doesn't bring it up in 21. Why? It's because Revelation, the book of Revelation, is not primarily about God's kingdom. It is, as John first started writing this book, a revelation of its king. Everything about this book is all about the king who will bring the kingdom. Everything else simply falls into place behind him. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ the king. Even the text we're reading, it starts with all of these characters, this plot, this, uh, these ideas, the bride, Jerusalem, heaven, but it ends with Christ the king. The kingdom is brought by Christ the king. God's heaven is filled with the light of Christ the king so that there's no need of a sun or a moon. God's rule is carried out through Christ the king. God's people are created in Christ the king. We're brought into that kingdom by the death and resurrection of Christ the king. The book isn't about a kingdom and it's certainly not about your kingdom or my kingdom. It's about a king who already has a pre-existing kingdom and he's bringing it to earth. The kingdom is just there in the book to recalibrate our attention to the throne where the king sits. Everything that you read here is to point your attention to a ruling and reigning king and to follow him as a result of that. Malcolm uh, Muggeridge put it this way. He said, Jesus' good news then was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. More than that, in some special, mysterious way, it was as if he was the kingdom. I want to end right there. I know there's so much uh, in Revelation 21 and 22. I just want the things that need to emerge to emerge to get the point across. God had a plan from the beginning to establish his kingdom and to populate it with his people who could experience his loving rule. And that's the story. Revelation 21 is simply the tracking device to remind us that it's coming. Give us a deeper glimpse. What I want to do right now for the next couple minutes is speak to various people who are listening to this. There's three types of people I have in mind. One, the broken. 
the disillusioned, the disappointed, the discouraged. Two is the deceived. And three is the disciple. That's what I mean. Revelation 21 speaks to you. You're broken, it speaks to you. Comfort for the broken. In no other way than simply saying as loud as possible, God is faithful. He's faithful to his people and he's faithful to the story that he's bringing his people into. And he needs to say this loud and clear because of some of the stories that some of you are going through right now. Or perhaps you're not hearing any of those things. Or everything in your life is falling apart, perhaps. And everything in your life is screaming the opposite. That God has left you and abandoned you and left you to die and left you to fend for yourself. Revelation screams louder than the human heart. God is faithful to his people. And his faithfulness is not based on your merit. It's not based on how faithful you have been to him. God is faithful even when we are faithless, Hebrews says. His promises don't depend on how great you are. They depend on how great Christ is. And if you want to know and have a reminder of how great Christ is, read a couple chapters out of Revelation. That's the whole point. He's great. And God is saying, my promises and loyalty to the things that I've said that I'm going to do for you and to you and with you are dependent on how great my Christ is. And he's great. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 22. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. We're not uh, you know, falling back and forth between decisions. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. I love that kind of back and forth dialogue. God says, yes, we say amen. It's like our life. God makes promises. Yes, 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 yes to my promises. Amen. Yeah, let's do it. Come on. This is like this kind of funny dialogue that God has us uh, uh, jumping into. I say yes to the promises I've made, and you say, all right, let's do it. Continuing with Paul, now it is a God who makes uh, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Perhaps some of you need that uh, this morning. Specifically that line, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm. Some of you feel like you're going to fall off the deep end of the pool. God is the one who keeps your feet from slipping. It's true to his promise. He will not fail you. He will not leave when the fire gets hot. And you might not feel him in the room at the time. You might feel with, for all intents and purposes like he is gone, but he is there. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation screams about God's faithful love. I want to speak to a second group of people, those who may be deceived by what they think heaven is supposed to be like. I want to start by asking you this question. Do you think you're the type of person who would love to be in a place like heaven? I think most people would quickly say yes to that. I recall this quote by the late Dallas Willard. Put it this way. He said, I'm thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. But standing it may prove to be a more difficult matter than those who take their view of heaven from popular movies or popular preaching may think. The fires of heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. What he means by that is that some of us, some of you want to go to heaven, if only because your version of heaven is more akin to a country club, where you just kind of walk in, do whatever you want, and all of your sinful, selfish desires are met in full. It's your best life now. It's everything you've ever wanted, free from the rule and reign of God himself. And that's your version of heaven. So why wouldn't you say, yeah, I want to go to heaven. But heaven isn't about you. The deepest prayer of the disciple is to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Want to know what heaven is like? It's God's will being done. 
And sometimes God's will doesn't line up with our will. Guess what has to go? My will. And it hurts. Sometimes we don't like that. But heaven is going to be a place where all of that is completely accomplished. Is that a place that you would like to be? Willard continues, I often wonder how happy and useful some of the fearful, bitter, lust-ridden, hate-filled Christians I have seen involved in church or family or neighborhood or political battles would be if they were forced to live forever in the unrestrained fullness of the reality of God and with multitudes of beings just like him. You have to ask yourself the question, is heaven a place I really want to find myself in? Because it is the unrestrained reality of God's rule and reign. Is that something I want to conform to? And if it is, then you're a disciple. And that's the third group of people I want to ask a question. A challenge for the disciple that goes like this. God is speaking to you today. Not later, not when Christ comes and returns. He's speaking to you now. My tendency to, when I read books like Revelation, things that are very like future-oriented, is to be like, oh, that is awesome and great, and it's later, probably a million years from now. I don't know, thousand million, what's the difference? That's going to come later, but I have you know, my life right now, so I'm just going to live it this way, and when he decides to come, you know, I'll get my act together. Our tendency is to see something, even to get excited about it, but to find that it's at a later time and to be indifferent to it. I remember a few weeks ago seeing the trailer to that new Star Wars film that's coming out, something my dad used to take me to uh, <clears throat> uh, well after it came out. But uh, just seeing this new one come up and just the, the lack of CGI, and the old like 70s film noir, and just all of so- the, just the saber fighting and all of the voices, the original cast, and then it ends with like Harrison Ford, and I'm like, yes, yes, and I got so excited, I was at the edge of my seat, and then the last scene, coming to you in December of 2027. <laughs> Some of you feel that way about the book of Revelation. You're like, I get it, this is awesome, I love it, I believe it, but that's later, man got a life I'm living now and I got stuff I'm dealing with right now. What about right now? Listen, this is a glimpse of a future kingdom, yet God is shaping us for that kingdom right now. It was John that said in verse 2, we are now being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God is shaping you to be the type of person who would love a place like God's heaven. It's going to involve brushing some of the rough edges off, changing certain parts of you, transformation. Sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes it's painful. But God is preparing us to be people who would love a place like God's kingdom. In other words, the way that you live your life right now actually matters. It's not about just living how you want to live and then one day you'll wake up in heaven and everything will just fall into place. God is into transformation now. And literally everything that you do, every decision you make, everything that you care about, everything that you think upon minute by minute, every major decision, every small decision, everything that comes from you is literally shaping you into the person that you're going to be. You are the person that you are right now because of so many decisions and thoughts and processes and feelings that came before this moment that's made you who you are now. God cares about your life right now. And he cares about who you're going to be. And his deepest desire for you is to prepare you for that wedding in the clouds. It is to transform and craft you into his original image for humanity. To make you perfectly human as you were intended to be. So that when he appears, his glorious appearing will not be tragic for you. You will long for it. If the kingdom answers all of our deepest longings in life, and if union with Christ is the way to enter into that kingdom life, then the greatest gift God could ever give to a human being is to make them more like Jesus, to fill them with the life of Jesus and to transform them, transform them from the inside out. Paul said in Romans 8, we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he, he describes that good purpose by saying, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God intends to make you just like Jesus. The question is, is that really what you want in life? To love the things that he loves, to be entirely entranced by the things of heaven, to be completely liberated from bondage to sin, to rule and to reign with him in glory and to be under his rule and reign. That's the Christian's destiny. Is that what you signed up for? If it is, it calls upon you to go deeper. My question for all of you is what are you spending this life being shaped into? Something is shaping you. What is it? And I want to call you and myself back to being conformed to the image of Christ. In the most simple terms possible, Jesus put it this way. Hey, you want a piece of the kingdom? Come with me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That promise is extended to all who believe. Let's deal with it as we worship through song. Heavenly Father, ask right now as as we begin to sing words about you that are true. I just pray for the doubting heart that's in that place uh, that's just having a hard time saying things that are hard to believe. Perhaps we're singing about your love or singing about your faithfulness, singing about your presence, and all this time we just feel the lack of it. God, I just want to ask right now that as we sing those words by faith, that you would meet us in this place by the manifest presence of your Holy Spirit, revealing all of those things that our heart believes in, but maybe our body is having a hard time with. Christ, you have for so many years manifested your presence and your glory in this place. Ventura, Carpinteria, Santa Barbara. Wherever people long to meet with you, you have always been faithful to present yourself to them and so I I pray right now as we pull away from this panoramic view of what your kingdom is going to look like we would now get a panoramic view of the king in all of his glory and I pray that we would find ourselves more entranced more lured more attracted more devoted more in love with everything that we see and may you shape us into the types of people you want us to be this time forward and forevermore. In Jesus' name.